And so this morning we return to our studies in the life of Abraham and we've reached Genesis chapter 15 and once again in verse 1 the Lord God appears to Abraham and he reveals to him some new truths and spiritual insights about his being and about his way. The book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. The word Genesis, it orig- its origins are found in the Greek word beginning. And in Genesis, we've learned various facts about who God is and who we are. So, for example, in the first chapter of Genesis, we learn how this world came into existence. In the second chapter, we see how humans came into existence. And then in the third chapter, we learn about sin and the problems that sin has caused all of humanity ever since. And also in the third chapter, there is the first glimpse of God's plan of salvation found in the Proto-Evangelium of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And these revelations continue to come through to us through the book of Genesis. Just skipping to the last chapter we looked at, chapter 14, we looked at this man Melchizedek who was introduced to us in verse 18 and he disappears out of the narrative in verse 20. And we saw how this man points to the Messiah and the role he would play. He would be a king and he would also be a priest to the God Most High. And chapter 15 then is no different to this. We've got these new promises and new revelations about the character of God. Interestingly enough, in verse 6 as well, probably one of the most important verses in the Bible, we have... Um, the very first mention of belief. And this is fairly well what this chapter is about. It's about our relationship with God, our belief in him and the faith that we can display in his character. But because there is so much in this chapter, I thought about splitting it into two. And then after I'd started writing, I discovered that I'm only going to be able to look at the first verse in any detail today um, if we're to get home. So... For the rest of today, we're just going to be looking at this first verse. And this first verse deals with faith in the midst of worries and difficulties. It starts with these words, after these things. And what things Abraham had just been through. In the previous chapter, if you can cast your minds back, we remember his nephew Lot, he had got caught up in the quarrels of powerful kings Um, of the region and he'd been kidnapped and he was being taken back towards captivity and a life of slavery by these kings and Abram had heard this news and so he'd gathered together all his trained servants and he'd set off in pursuit of Lot and these kings until he caught up with them and then we read in verse 15 that he um, devised and pulled off a highly intelligent military strategy where he defeated this far superior force and rescued his nephew Lot and all the other captives and their goods. On the way back to his dwelling place by the terebinth trees of Mamre, Abraham had then met this other king, this king who he'd never heard of before, Melchizedek, king of Salem. And this king had come out and he'd blessed him. And Abraham had accepted this blessing and acknowledged that God had given him the victory. And we know this because he tithed. Um, In verse 20 it tells us he gave him a tithe of all the things. And it was after these things, after this really 
unusual and intense part of Abraham's life that we read, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Three great promises that I'd like to look at in more detail. The first thing I'd like us to consider then is how these words of promise and reassurance give us an insight into the man, Abraham, and also an insight into God's character and being. First of all, if we look at Abraham, we discover a lot about how he felt and his situation in life at, that, at this moment in time. Having just won this great victory over these four really powerful kings, a victory that he had absolutely no right to win, he'd rescued his nephew Lot and he'd taken great heart and encouragement from meeting this king Melchizedek. Perhaps we expect to find a man flush with success and confidence and that this chapter is, would be a reflection of his faith which would be so confident and strong in light of what had happened. A man who was once a very vulnerable refugee, who's now top of the pile, he's found his feet and he's in a position to go forward and claim God's promises, claim the land that Lord had said was his in chapter 13, verse 14. Lift your eyes and look around now from north, south, east and west. This will be given to you. But there's not a bit of this attitude in Abraham. In the previous chapter, we see that he'd given up all the possessions and the acclamation and the chance he had to seize the land by his own strength because Abraham did not want to taint or ruin his faith. Abraham said to the king of Sodom, chapter 14, verse 22, I have raised my hand to the, God, to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. So instead, we are presented with a man who has some fears and a man who has some worries about the future. Abraham was a man who had just made some very powerful enemies, proud kings with long memories who, given the chance, could um, go back, gather their strength and remember the humiliation and slaughter that he'd inflicted on them and come and wipe him out. He was also a man with old fears, fears that we'd read about in previous chapters on his mind. And we see that in verse 2 and 3. Um, Lot had left him, it seems, um, gone back to Damascus, uh, gone back to Sodom rather. And his heir was a servant born in the house, Eliezer of Damascus. So who was going to be the child of promise that God had said he would give him? Abraham in this chapter is a man whose faith is under test. And yet we read in verse 1 that the Lord appeared to him and he gave him these three promises. And this gives us just such an insight into the character of God. Do not fear, Abraham. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Here is a God who loves and knows his people. A God who knows their fears and a God who is intimate with them. The Lord reveals himself to Abraham as a God of comforts and tells him he has no reason to fear. All these things, we understand why he might be fearful. But the Lord is saying, do not fear, do not worry. 
And this is an exhortation that's found in the Bible over 60 times that invites us to place our trust and our confidence in God. In Matthew chapter 6, our Lord, when he's at the, well, partway through his Sermon on the Mount, in verse 33 to 34, he says to the people this, he says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Those who are God's children have no need to live their lives in fear. Yet fears are something that we all have. And very often, our fears are what tomorrow may bring. This has always been the case with humanity, and I think it always will be. But the word of the Lord came to Abraham, and it speaks to all believers today, and reminds us of this promise that we have through Christ, that there is no need to fear for the future. In John chapter 14, verse 1, Christ's own words were, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. And how different is this? How different a picture is this of God from the world that... From how, how different a predict, picture is this to the one that the world presents to, to us today of God? They make him out to be a cold, uncaring God. Um, they point to all the suffering. They say, if the Lord God knew what I was going through, he would intervene. He would help make me happy again. Why does he allow me to suffer all these anxieties and worries? And so it can be a great encouragement for believers to realize that this great man of faith, Abraham, the friend of God, the father of Israel, was also a man who did suffer fears and worries. I'm not sure that the stiff upper lip um, that the British were once well known for is as um, prevalent today as it once was, where people kept their fears and their hardships to themselves and nobody knew anything about them. But I do know that increasingly in society today, on social media and stuff, we see an image that people present of themselves. Uh, The perfect smile, the perfect family, the great job, the luxury holidays, whatever they choose to put out there, they try to make out that everything is going fine and everything in their life is really good. And often we on the outside can look in and we're aware of what's going on in our lives, the difficulties and fears we have, and we wonder... Are we the only exception? Are we the only one who feels these feelings? Perhaps when you come to church, you see that great man or woman of God sat there. Um, They're there week in, week out. Their faith is so obvious to everyone. Or that person who you can really see the blessing of God in their lives, the time he's intervened and helped them, and the devotion they have to his work. It's just, they never seem to have any doubts. Or perhaps that saint who is so unshakable in his faith in God, you look on. But what we have to realise is these people are all like us. They all face the worries and the heartaches that this world has. And the Lord knows the secret and the hidden thoughts of all our hearts. He was very much aware of Abraham's predicaments and he's very much aware of ours. So therefore the scripture says things like, do not fear Abraham, or the Lord Jesus Christ said, do not fear little flock. Or in Mark he said, do not fear, 
only believe. But it's all very well saying these words, but why should we not fear? And the reasons we should not fear, they're found in the next two promises. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Now I'm sure we're all aware that in ancient warfare the primary function of a shield was to shelter behind to block the attacks of the enemy from reaching your body. It was an essential piece of equipment um, that protected the soldier's life. And so the shield, it could be raised above heads to protect um, missile strikes from arrows, or it could be placed in front of the soldier um, to form a wall with others in order to stop spears and sword thrusts coming through. And here the Lord was promising Abraham, from whatever direction the threats may come, be it to his health, his lineage, or his security in the land where he was dwelling, in each situation, the Lord God would be there as his shield to protect him and to keep him. And the reason I read the third psalm of David earlier was we can see how this was the case in his life. If you turn back to that third psalm, which is um, titled in your Bible, a psalm of David as he fled from his son Absalom. Just have a look at how Abraham, um, how David rather, um, how the Lord helped David in this situation. In the first two verses, David lays before the Lord his situation. It was a desperate, fearful situation. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Then there's a pause. And then he reflects upon the character and the promise of God. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice and he heard me from his holy hill. And then we have the experience of David, verse 5 and 6, the faithfulness of God to his promises. He says, I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord to sustain me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. The Lord was his shield. He had no need to fear. And so, in verse 5, we see he just lay down and slept. And it's a very common experience, isn't it, for people who have worries and fears on their minds that the first thing that deserts them usually is sleep. In the cold, small, dark hours of the early morning, they're lying in bed, tossing and turning, their mind racing over with what tomorrow may bring. And yet David, this man fleeing for his life, narrowly just escaping with it, he could place his head on his pillow as he was being hunted by Absalom's men, and he could drift into that soothing, refreshing state of sleep and peace, that sleep brings rather, because he knew the Lord was his shield. You, O Lord, are my shield. Those were the words that brought him so much comfort. And David trusted in this precious promise that the Lord had made to Abraham and makes to all his children. Now, this could cause then some people to mistakenly believe that once they become a Christian, all of a sudden they're going to be protected from all the worries of this world, everything will be all right, and the things that we fear from day to day will disappear. 
And some of the cults do teach this. They say if you believe in God and do this and that, nothing will ever go wrong in your life again. And people are brainwashed into believing this. But we know from our own experiences that this is not the case. And actually the scriptures are quite clear that the opposite will be true. The scriptures teach us that far from being exempt from fears, that we will face future trials, future difficulties and suffering in this life. Because the believer has now entered into a spiritual conflict. We are now battling with the forces of darkness, as well as facing the concerns of the world and the evil that comes from within us. And this is why Paul, in the book of Ephesians, I could hardly go through talking about shields without going to the armour of God found in Ephesians chapter 6, exhorts all all believers to put on the whole armour of God. Why do we need to do that? Well, he says in verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. The Bible warns us that the devil will seek to trap us, to bring the name of Jesus into disrepute by deploying all his forces, all the legions of darkness, to come and destroy and to corrupt and to ruin our testimony as believers in order to bring Christ's name down. And it's a power that's far greater than anything we can stand against or deal with by ourselves. And therefore... The only way we can stand is by believing and trusting this promise of God. I am your shield. He, with all his forces of light, will shield us from these fiery darts of the devil. He is there to protect us and help us. It's only when we start to doubt this promise that we step outside the protection of God's shield and go our own ways that life then starts to go horribly wrong. Think of Abraham in chapter 13 of Genesis. He departed from the land of the promise and went into Egypt to seek provision. In the midst of this severe famine, he began to doubt whether God would keep him, whether God would preserve him. Perhaps he thought, God has forgotten all about me. And so he moved from where he should have been to Egypt, the place that the Bible often is symbolic for comfort and all the plenty that this world has to offer. And what did we see in chapter 13? Far from reducing his fears, far from making his life easier, chapter 12, I should say, rather, um, his life spiralled out of control. Everything went wrong. The shield wall, as it were, had been breached. But even though his faith had stumbled, even though he had been weakened, the Lord saw all this, And he enabled him to be brought out of Egypt, unscathed, unharmed, and actually greatly blessed. And so, though Abraham had failed, the promises and character of God, I will be your shield, never fail. They remain the same forever. And so, the Bible warns us, be ready for the difficulties that this world will present before you. Make yourself familiar with this promise. And there may be times when we feel like we're under ferocious attack. Um, I imagine in an ancient warfare you've got swords and spears hitting your shield. It's not a comfortable place to be in, even though you're safe. Um, 
as we are facing the world, the flesh and the devil seeking to attack us, God's shield, it will never fail. They will not be pleasant experiences and you may wonder how you can cope. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 to 13, the apostle wrote this to the church. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The shield will never be breached. Johnny reminded us last week in the evening as well that whatever is thrown at the believer... Romans 8.28 says, We know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to, the purpose, to his purpose. And so this unfailing protection, this shield that can never be breached, it was one of the key thoughts of David. You can see this in the Psalms. A part of God's character that he repeatedly returned to in praise and worship. In Psalm 28, verse 7, he said, The Lord is my strength and he's my shield. My heart trusted in him and I am helped. Therefore my heart greatly rejoices and with my song I will praise him. In Psalm 144, verse 2, he says, The Lord is my loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and the one in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. And in the 18th Psalm, verse 30, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. And this is the refrain of all the other great men of faith who we read about in the Bible who built their lives upon this promise of God. Um, Very recently I was given a book on Elijah by A.W. Pink. I'm sure some of you may know it. Uh, A comprehensive book about his life. And if ever there was another man who knew what it was like to be in Abraham's situation now, I think it must have been Elijah. He was a man whose life was in great danger from those all around him. A man who worried about who his successor would be in the work. And... Yet his faith and his confidence in God were so strong that in 1 Kings chapter 18, when the Lord appeared to him and said, Elijah, you want to come out of hiding and go and present yourself before King Ahab on Mount Carmel, he went. And he confronted this wicked king who sought to take his life. He, um, he, um, all the scorning, the mocking of the false priests, prophets of Baal and the um, people... He went there all alone, knowing that God would preserve him, trusting him, and that he would be with him. And so, brothers and sisters, I'd like to ask you your question. I'd like to ask you a question. Do you live your lives like Elijah in this way? Do you live your lives with this promise of God at the forefront, that he will be your shield, nothing can harm you? Or do you live your lives like the disciples who, when they were caught in the storm on the Sea of Galilee, were exceedingly fearful? So the Lord was questioned to ask them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? 
Because we move on to our final promise in verse 1. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Those who serve God are not the losers in this life. Here the Lord not only promises Abraham that he will be his reward, but look at the adverb and the adjective before this promise. He will be his exceedingly great reward. For Abraham, who had just refused the offer from the king of Sodom of a huge fortune, the fortune of one of the wealthiest cities in the area, these things would be as nothing compared to the copious abundance, that exceedingly great reward that God gives his people. Those who honour God will be honoured by him. There is often this perception in the world, isn't there, that Christians are life's losers. Um, They're restricted, people who can't do this or that, people who won't do this. And to a certain extent, this is entirely understandable because within the Christians' lives, there is no physical evidence of any great reward that those outside the church do not have. If you compare the life of the average believer with the average person of the world, they're not more um, abundant in wealth or possessions or the things that the world crave. They're very much as the people of the world. But the problem here is that these people are only focusing on the physical things, the things that they see, the things that the world craves for. Look carefully at this promise that God had made to Abram. I am your exceedingly great reward. I am. It was God who would be Abraham's exceedingly great reward. It wasn't a promise of earthly riches and treasures like the false prosperity gospel tells people, you do this and God will bless you with great wealth. It was the promise that I am. I, the Lord God, will be your exceedingly great reward. I, the changeless, the eternal the glorious, the righteous creature, the one who upholds all things, will be the believer's reward. And too often we find ourselves in life dragged away from focusing on the character and the glory of God as the politics and the world's solutions to our problems seize all of our attention. But Abraham's reward was to be a spiritual reward. There were also earthly blessings attached to it, but it was chiefly spiritual. And as we reflect upon God's character, his being and his person, we just realise how staggeringly great the believer's reward is. If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and let's just look at how Paul puts it in his life. Verse 8 and 9, he describes his experience. He says, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And Paul was a man who knew what it was like to suffer, to face the hardships of this world. Um, Just over a couple of pages, he describes his um, sufferings. He says, In labours more abundance, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, and deaths often. From the Jews five times I received forty stripes, minus one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils amongst false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and in thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. This man knew what it was to suffer. But look what he says in light of all this in verse 17 and 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are seen are, are not seen are eternal. When a believer is certain of the spiritual and understands and believes these promises of God, then all the trials and all the fears that the world and the devil can throw at us are put into context. It was God's will for Abraham, and it continues to be his will for his people, that they live confident lives, that they do not give way to these prevailing fears because they can focus on the eternal blessings that are theirs to inherit. And so I'd like to just finish by looking at what some of these rewards are. We've said that they are there, but what are they? Well, the rewards that are found in God are seen most clearly in the life and the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Once again, it's the Apostle Paul writing to the church. He reminds the church in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The guarantee of God's promises are found in Christ. Peter wrote to the persecuted early church in his first epistle and he gave them an example of what their rewards were as they suffered. He says, Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The blessings to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Christ's resurrection is the believer's guarantee that we have this inheritance that Peter spoke of, an inheritance that cannot disappoint, that will never be spoiled, reserved for us in heaven. In Revelation, the Revelation chapter 21, the Apostle John was given just a, a vision, an insight into what these things would be. A place where precious stones and metals, the things that this world values so much, they're just used for foundations and walls. There is nothing. Um, And the glory of the city, the absolute pinnacle, is the lamb seated on his throne, whose light lights up everything. So great is our reward that these were only visions. The human mind cannot comprehend what Christ has done for us. It's far beyond our mortal minds. Apostle Paul, once again, he said, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those 
who love him. With the resurrection as well, we're told of Christ that for the believer, our corruptible bodies are also going to be resurrected. They're going to be changed. Our bodies will be glorified and become like Christ's. And in many ways, the issue that perhaps was burdening Abraham the most at this moment in time can be seen in verses 2 to 5. Where would his heir come from? Sarah was barren. Abraham was nearly 100 years old. Um, he, they were both experiencing the decline of the human body and the aging process that we all know. And yet God promised him, he said, your descendant will come from your body. I am the one who can renew your bodies. I am the one who can restore you back again. I can do anything. And it points towards, perhaps in a very loose way, that day that we look forward to as believers when our bodies will be raised again, that we will be restored and renewed and made incorruptible on that glorious day of resurrection. The body that we have now, the one with all its weaknesses of mind and um, frame and its failures, it's going to be changed in an instant. And all the things that have ever caused us pain or fear or misery, um, we will be released from that. And there we will enjoy the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father, um, along with all the spiritual seed of Abraham. We will see our exceedingly great reward face to face. So, as God bound himself to this great man of faith with these three precious and binding promises, do not be afraid, Abraham, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward, he also binds himself today to all who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ with these promises. They are not just for Abraham. Galatians 3, verse 16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. These three promises are for all of us who are in Christ. For those who are unbelievers, though, these promises can offer you no comfort. If you continue to ignore the Lord Jesus Christ, if you continue to ignore the God of Abraham then you will spend an eternity of regret outside of these blessings as you look back and realise that these could have been yours if only you had asked him to be your saviour. But for the believer, let us take heart from these promises. As we look to God in this week and in what he will do for us in our lives and in the age to come, I'm going to finish with Paul's words from 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18 again. I know it's a repeat, but... This should, this, should be our, um, this should be what we're focusing on as we go out into the world ahead. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal.